0: Is it ever too late to incorporate? So if you find yourself with this um, million dollar lemonade stand, uh, is, it, is it too late or can you always go in and get the help of a lawyer and get some legal advice to make sure that you're uh, protected?
1: Well, there's nothing stopping you from incorporating company at any given time, but there could be some implications, right? Uh, uh, there could be tax implications. Uh, there could be uh, old skeletons in the closet. So the idea that there's a a number of things you would have done as a sole proprietor to get that business to a million dollars prior to starting the company. Uh, So there would be discussions over uh, who would take liability over any incident that may have taken place while it was still operating as a sole proprietorship. Uh, So it's it's very, in my mind, uh, starting any business without incorporating is a bad idea period um and and uh, i mean i've yet to be convinced otherwise i've yet to see it ever really work out where the sole proprietorship was the good call <laughs>
0: access to justice. I'm your host Heather Malarik of Merrick Law. My co-host is Evan Clark of Kahane Law. Hi Evan, how are you doing today?
2: I'm doing well Heather. How are you doing?
0: I'm not too bad thanks. Just back from vacation so cleaning out the cobwebs a little bit in the inbox and uh, excited to be back in the in the host seat.
2: Uh, I'm trying to clean out my inbox because right after this I'm supposed to be going for a a little bit of a long weekend with the family, doing some camping, Uh, so kind of the opposite, and then Monday, I'll be dealing with whatever happens tomorrow. Right, right, yeah. (laughs) Uh,
0: We are joined as often today by our very special guest, Kim McDonald of McDonald Advisory. Kim is a financial advisor and insurance advisor with Raymond James Limited. Hi, Kim. How are you doing?
3: Hi Heather, I'm jealous of your fresh mountain glow from your time off. Uh, Other than that, we're doing great. Uh, Happy to be here today. I think we've got a very interesting guest, so I'll let you uh, get to introducing him.
0: Yeah, we're excited to welcome today's guest, Nitin Bhatia. Hi Nitin, how are you doing? Good, how are you? Uh, Mr. Bhatia was born in Edmonton and is one of the founding partners of SBLLP. He's the team lead of SBLLP's corporate commercial group. His practice is highly focused on transactional files, both in corporate securities and the banking sector, as well as commercial real estate. He's regularly involved in mortgage financing, leasing and development work. His experience has led him to work with clients that include land developers, the retail hospitality complex, uh, major financial lenders, small-scale private lenders, chartered banks, credit unions, and mid sized enterprises, as well as members of the Alberta Real Estate Association. Um, Nitin is also a sessional instructor at at the U of A's Faculty of Business, and is currently a sessional professor at the university's of Alberta's faculty of law in the area of commercial real estate and financing. Um, He also uh, donates his time um, as a director of the mortgage uh, loans Association of Alberta, and is a board member of the South Asian Bar Association of Edmonton. He's also a past executive board member of the Manasseva Society and the Edmonton Valley Zoo Development Society. So um, that's a pretty amazing background, and we're really excited. I
1: think the podcast is over. That's all the time we have for today.
0: (laughs) So many, so many credentials. We're so excited to have you here to uh, to hopefully pick your brain about businesses, which is, I mean, it's a pretty big topic. So, (laughs) um, I guess to start us off in the conversation, um, we're thinking that people that are listening to today's episode are going to be small business owners or people who are thinking about opening a business of their own. Mm-hmm. What do you think are some of the things that small business owners should know about um, just getting started up and how lawyers can help in that process?
1: And Thanks uh, for having me on and uh um- yeah, it's a good question, actually. Uh, I think uh, what, we, w- what I tend to want to uh, get out there in terms of the information to people that are looking at starting a business uh, is that it's important for them to understand the role of professionals, um, whether it be their accountant, whether it be their financial advisor, whether it be their lawyer. Um, professionals have those particular designations for a reason, and they've existed for so long because there's clearly some value add Uh, that they can bring to the table. Uh, With respect to the legal side of things, uh, there's just so much to consider right from the get-go. When you think about uh, uh, business, Many people out there think that, okay, you hang your shingle somewhere and off you go and you start selling widgets and you start getting cash and there you go, you've got got yourself a business, but um, protecting yourself right off the get-go is so important. So uh, things like just understanding the difference between incorporating a company so that you actually have a company as opposed to just operating a business under your personal name. Um, There's a cost associated with incorporating a company. But if you were to incorporate a company, it would be done through the corporate registrar in Alberta. They're the ones who would effectively give your company an assigned number and it would effectively become its own entity. And uh, the way we treat companies in Alberta and in Canada as a whole, is that each company is actually its own physical entity. It's almost its own person, Um, which means that that company is responsible for its actions. Um, And why that's so important is that if you were to run a sole proprietorship, which is basically you operating a business without incorporating a company or setting anything up, is that company is then just you as a sole proprietor, which means any decision you make on behalf of a sole proprietorship, you're liable for. Um, So you make a mistake and you get sued, that's on you. You no longer have the protection of the company being the party that is, is effectively the shield. Um, similarly, if you were to go get a bank loan, uh, you'd be getting a personal bank loan. It wouldn't be a bank loan to your company, um, uh, because the company and yourself are one. So just that alone is such a major <laughs> topic of debate amongst so many people who don't really know the difference and have never really had to look into it. Um, there tends to be multiple ways of, of, opening a company right uh some people it's by sheer luck uh you know they started a lemonade stand and people just continued to show up uh they didn't ever think they were going to make more than a few hundred dollars so they never thought about going and incorpor- incorporating a company next thing you know that thing has turned into something and now they're they're uh uh kind of working backwards just to get everything set up so incorporation is the number one step uh, um
0: mm-hmm. Um, I had a follow-up question to that. Is it ever too late to incorporate? So if you find yourself with this um, million-dollar lemonade stand, uh, is, it, is it too late or can you always go in and get the help of a lawyer and get some legal advice to make sure that you're uh, protected?
1: Well, there's nothing stopping you from incorporating a company at any given time, but there could be some implications, right? Uh, uh, there could be tax implications, Uh, there could be uh, old skeletons in the closet. So the idea that there's a a number of things you would have done as a sole proprietor to get that business to a million dollars prior to starting the company. Uh, So there would be discussions over uh, who would take liability over any incident that may have taken place while it was still operating as a sole proprietorship. Uh, So it's it's very, in my mind, uh, starting any business without... Incorporating is a bad idea. Period. Um, and and uh, I mean, I've yet to be convinced otherwise. I've yet to see it ever really work out where the sole proprietorship was a good call. Um, a- again, we're not talking about uh, a person who's, you know, like a children's musician who's doing uh, doing like a music show at a birthday party once a week, and even that is probably <laughs> filled with liabilities. Right? Someone trips right. over a wire, or the music is too loud, and. Be- and uh, burst someone's eardrum, suddenly there's a lawsuit and the person is personally responsible.
3: So, oh. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Evan.
1: Uh,
2: so and I, I, uh, I started as a sole proprietor. And, uh, but you know what? It didn't last very long before mm-hmm. I, I incorporated. And I, I did that deliberately. There's a couple of reasons, I guess. As lawyers, we don't benefit from the same liability protection that uh, other people do when they incorporate, which maybe we can talk about in a second. And so uh, I had to have liability insurance anyways. And then the tax implications, when you're starting out, you're not getting the tax benefits of a corporation. So there's, I could, you know, as I'm losing money, as I'm starting the business, that washes right through to my personal income tax. But I mean, I agree with you because uh, as soon as it was financially viable, I, I incorporated and anyone who's not starting a professional corporation, which, we can unpack as well in a sec. I know we're kind of using some terms that not everyone will understand uh, or know what they mean. For normal, your normal everyday business corporation, uh, the corporation for that is gonna provide that protection right away. Another thing I thought of, Nathan, was a, a potential issue that could arise if you start and and then years later when you've already got a million dollar business going you go to incorporate is uh you're probably going to have contracts and if they don't have a clause in there that um, just allows you to assign it without any kind of you know issues that could be an issue where you have to renegotiate contracts now in the corporation in the corporate name right
1: there's a whole host of uh, issues really Uh, liabilities are one aspect practicality like you're discussing the practical nature of assigning contracts or 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 anything that's a, a huge issue of its own um uh so yeah i mean in your circumstances it made sense to try this sole proprietorship first while you you tried to basically feel the waters and figure out what you were going to do but as you're i assume that now you're no longer in that circumstance because it, having a financially viable business and now that you have an idea of what exactly it is you're doing it makes complete sense to be protected with the with certain at least the tax benefits of of a pc i agree with you in certain professions um, you don't get to avoid Uh, personal liability if uh, you do make an error and of course uh, law would be uh, law is one of those professions Uh, however i would say i just point out that had some had you not had a a general liability insurance period and you were operating a sole proprietorship and someone walked into your office and tripped and hit their head your law your law society insurance wasn't going to cover that Right. right, so like that's again, it's one of those yeah. things where you, yeah. I mean, we could, There's a million things that could happen, um, and what's what's realistic and what's not is a different story. But
2: uh, it, it's kind yeah. of the exception that proves the rule, right? Like, yeah. Okay, we. I've. You said you you could never think of one. Oh, I found one, but yeah. it's so yeah. unique that uh, you know. Yeah. I think what you said is absolutely right. That for the vast majority of people yeah. starting a business, it's going to be. You're going to want that protection right away. So how much does it cost to incorporate?
1: Uh, I mean, it, it'll range if you go to a law firm or if you were to go to a registry, but a law firm, the typical fees are five to $600 plus uh, any registration costs. I think anyone should budget around $1,000 all in, and that would cover setting up the company, setting up its corporate minutes, which is a very important and kind of mundane and archaic concept, but uh, it's still required by law. The Business Corporations Act requires us to have minute books. So a law firm would set that up for you and that's what would have your share certificates. So that's what basically proves your ownership in the company. Um, So lawyers would set that all up and yeah, roughly a thousand dollars.
2: Yeah, but now you mentioned registry fees, like can't can't anyone just walk down to their local registry Do whatever search they need to do uh, new we call it a nuanced search and then register their own corporation why do they need lawyers
1: yeah (laughs) fair enough yeah no um, absolutely it's possible you can do it uh, but you can drive your car with two feet it doesn't make it a good idea (laughs) uh, at the the end of the day you're um, uh, you know there's a reason why we are equipped with the skill set to do what we do. We, we've learned how to do it. We we're, we ensure that it's done right. Um, that being said, I'd be I'd be completely uh, uh, disingenuous if I if I said that there aren't circumstances where going to the registry and incorporating uh, uh, wouldn't make sense. Right. I, I think that um, if it's a small enough business, you're a one person show. You're your sole director and sole shareholder. Um, yeah, I mean, technically you could probably get away with just doing it at the registry, though your savings are not big enough to justify that, in my opinion. You know, you'll save a couple of hundred dollars, but uh, the peace of mind you'll have by making sure it's done right and set up right in the first place is, is huge. Um, I'll, I'll give you a very small example of where it actually pays off financially as well. So you pay an extra $200 basically to a law firm to get it done. Um, if we set up a company with the right bylaws, the right articles of incorporation. This basically has a lot to do with the rules that follow your different shares in your company. Um, It can get very complicated, but uh, ultimately if we set it up right. You've already got uh, these articles that have basically been worked on for years and years and years and refined for years and years and years to adapt to the current market, the current tax environment. Whereas if you go to the registry, you get a five-page uh, document which is your articles, and it's the most run-of-the-mill. So the where this uh, plays a role is tomorrow. If you're selling the shares of your company, or you're doing some kind of tax reorganization, this is again if you've become very successful, uh, tax reorganization is almost a guarantee to happen in your in your company's lifetime. Um, you are going to pay thousands of extra dollars to a law firm to first fix your articles to bring it up to speed to where it should be and then make the necessary changes to allow for it prior to even getting the tax reorganization done Um, i've dealt with this many times and you know financially has been great is uh someone decided to go to a registry and then afterwards come to us later and we've we've been able to actually make a good good money fixing their mistakes but why make the mistake in the first place for those extra couple hundred dollars you're good. And, and, you know, this kind of ties into a little bit, Kim, you might, you might have seen this as a, as a financial advisor, but, but um, uh, you may have seen people who have written their own wills, uh, instead of hiring a, a lawyer to do it. And uh, wills cost almost nothing. I mean, in reality, for, for what you're trying to protect is a couple of hundred dollars, maybe $500 for a, a will to be done. And if you do it incorrectly, and suddenly you have a family fighting in court over the validity of a will, how much money do you think they're spending on lawyers?
2: Yeah, they're spending thousands and thousands and thousands. And, and guess, guess what it's coming out of? The estate.
1: Yeah, so the same estate you were trying to protect is now caught, you know, the state is spending all this money to manage a fight that could have been prevented by a five or $600 document. Yeah. So, yeah, it comes down to, at the end of the day, it's not that money is, you know, money is scarce and everybody needs it. and Nobody wants to necessarily spend it if they don't have to. But the moral of my story here is you want to start a business, you have to spend that money. Go get that incorporation done. Uh, it'll save many headaches in the future.
2: Yeah, I, I have something to add to that uh, and then I have a question for you. Um, so in a previous life, I had a different business, a tile installation business. And I knew enough about business to know that we wanted to incorporate. Um, we wanted that protection of the, of the corporate veil, which is gonna be my question to you. Um, and, and so we knew we needed to get a corporation. And you know, like I'm a big do-it-yourselfer kind of guy. So I you know, didn't have any money. So, uh, you know, we, we did all the steps, followed the instructions online, this is in British Columbia and we started the corporation, you know, now looking back, we didn't have a minute book. We didn't know any idea about like resolutions you're supposed to be doing. Uh, we didn't even issue share certificates um no registries we were totally non-compliant with the british columbia whatever their act yeah. is called yeah. um and you know like I, I i i'm good at reading stuff and understanding and doing it on my own but i totally screwed that up and kind of missed the point and if that business had been successful and i didn't end up going to law school and becoming a lawyer i would have been paying a lot more money later yeah my question is Uh, I mentioned the corporate veil and we've kind of talked about it, but uh, could you just give us like a corporations one-on-one definition of what, what do do people mean when they talk about the corporate veil?
1: So, uh, I mean, consider, uh, consider that comment I made earlier, which is uh, that the, uh, uh, when you're incorporated, you're effectively a separate entity. So the corporation is its own entity and you are a separate person. So you're not necessarily responsible for what this other entity has done, and we're talking about on a personal level. So, um, best examples of that is, is again the uh, trip and fall. The example I was giving earlier, but but you're operating a business, but that business is an incorporated entity, and someone comes into your facility and slips and falls and hurts themselves. That's no longer uh evan clark's responsibility in terms of it it coming out of evan's personal pocketbook it comes out of the company's pocketbook and the company's insurance policy um so you're protected from certain wrongdoings but not everything uh as a because you'll still be a director in your corporation so you will be the controlling mind of your your corporation or the incorporated entity there are certain things that you cannot avoid uh personal liability on but they're very extreme so gross negligence causing certain types of harm uh, or fraud. Uh, those are the type of things that you would still as a director be uh, liable for. There's also uh, our, our good old government that'll make sure that uh, certain taxes you remain personally liable for even if your company can't pay it. Um, but but there's still such a wide range of protections by having the corporate entity, uh, when it comes to lawsuits. So similarly, your company can't afford to pay a bill to some other company and the company gets sued. It's at least the company getting sued and not you personally. So if the company is defunct, that company's gone, it's over. The, your life continues on and your personal assets haven't been affected. But if you were operating as a sole proprietor without a company, you would be, um, you would be stuck with that liability to pay that invoice, even if you were doing it for your business.
2: Thanks. Yeah, yeah. that's a perfect explanation. I don't want to dominate here, uh, Heather and Kim. Well, oh, I've, to- got,
3: I've got a good one. So. Uh, financial professionals bump up against accountants, bump up against lawyers. We're all kind of trying to figure out what the right process is, who who has the answers and how we're supposed to go forward. So Nitin, I'll put you on the spot and say, what kind of advice would you give to an accountant and a financial professional uh, in terms of looking at corporate structures and asking the right questions? Because a lot of people just kind of, like you alluded to before, they kind of toss their business together. They've got the accountant, the accountant's kind of doing some of the work. We're not sure if they, they're doing everything properly. Uh, financial advisors taking uh, marching orders from the accountant, and yeah. maybe the lawyer should be brought in. I'm curious what you have, have to tell us about what we should do.
1: Well, I, I think that this comes back to their first comment I made, which is the importance of hiring the right professionals. So the I think a good accountant a professional accountant and a good financial player uh, sorry a fi- financial planner uh, would be already aware of the fact that it's probably a good idea to bring the lawyer into the discussion similarly I think that a good lawyer would know when to tell their client that's important for them to get good accounting advice and financial advice so um, uh, so yeah I think for right off the bat I think bringing in a lawyer is a great idea, but it's important for you to also be aware of your skill set. So, you know, accounting is a very interesting field because there are different types of accountants out there. It's one thing to have a CPA designation and be uh, a practicing accountant, but there are a lot of folks out there that are bookkeepers who are still allowed to call themselves accountants, but they're not actually designated. And that doesn't take away from them. Bookkeepers are very good at what they do, but that's bookkeeping right bookkeepers are not meant to be planning out what your corporate structure should look like um and and similarly for financial advisors you know it's one thing if you're a wealth advisor and a financial planner you have an idea uh, of the area that you're you're working in which is great but if it's not the area you typically do right if you're more involved in selling life insurance then probably don't talk about corporate planning uh, in, in much detail and bring in the right people. So I, I think it's important for all of us to use, use each other um, in, in, and make sure that the right skill sets are being employed. I can tell you, I am not a tax advisor. I do do some tax law, uh, but, uh, but I do that in conjunction with accountants that spend all day long doing to a tax reorganization or tax work for their account uh, for their clients there are lots of designated accountants that don't do tax work at all and so they would not be the people i would call upon to to come in
3: mm. so how do we find the good ones
1: <laughs> yeah i know that's a tough one right I, but word of mouth right i, I think that's the uh, you know we're talking about small businesses and and uh how do they grow really like i, I mean there's advertising but I think word of mouth referrals have always been the best form of uh, referral out there in the business, and I think that people are very helpful. I, I, it's very rare that you encounter someone and ask them for directions, and they don't at least try to point you in the right spot, even if they don't know where they're pointing you to. I, I think that similarly, if if you are, uh, you know, if, if you're a layman, let's say someone who doesn't necessarily have any of the designations, and says, "I really need to get my," Um, my life in order and I want to hire a, a lawyer, an accountant, a financial planner, uh, where do I start? Um, you know, there are some great resources, but uh, but I, I think people are very intimidated by picking up the phone and just calling someone in those industries. Um, I, I get cold calls all the time, though, uh, and when I do, uh, if I don't do that area of work, I'm happy to refer them to someone I know that does. So I think it's a great start is just pick up the phone and, and, and uh, develop some comfort there. I think people should be honest about what they know how to do and what they don't know how to do. Um, but you'll, you'll still, you know, once in a while encounter the folks that um, do electrical work when they're really just a plumber, et cetera. Like it, it happens, it's similar in law. Law has hundreds of areas. And, um, you know, I, I would never go into court uh, representing a, a murderer uh or sorry an accused murderer uh because i'd be really worried about them ending up in jail because i wouldn't know the first thing about that area of work so
2: nice um so i think you've covered a lot about y- basics of business law and things that business people face as they're starting out um let's go stray a little bit, just a little bit from the legal side of business to kind of the business side of business. Um, you know, especially thinking yourself as a business person, what with the market constantly changing, what are some new challenges or areas of law that are emerging related to that?
1: Yeah, I think, I, <clears throat> I think the emergence of certain areas uh, of law when it comes to tech and, and also lifestyle uh, have really changed Um, how we have to approach the practice of law and then also how business owners have to approach their businesses. Um, Social media is probably the best and easiest example to use. Uh, Social media marketing and so the use of social media itself um, in in connection with businesses, it's a whole new world. Um, Everything from the liabilities arising out of that uh, to uh, what can actually be trademarked, what can actually be uh, protected as intellectual property um, how does defamation work in the context of social media um, uh, how how do we ensure that we're not um, we're not in a situation where we're uh, accused of uh, uh, misleading uh, customers or misleading the public or anything with some of the advertisements that we might want to throw on a on a hundred and I don't know if it's 140, 160 character uh, tweet. Um, so what I find is this area is is very unexplored. Uh, lawyers as a whole, are we're very conservative people and our industry is so conservative, right? Everything is precedent-based. Everything is, oh, well, this is how we did it then, this is how we do it now. Um, but the thing is, is back then we didn't have this stuff. So how do we deal with with these issues? And um, we're starting to see cases come in where we're representing a client on a litigious matter, and there's cyberbullying going on, and uh, between parties. And you're trying to understand what is a, what is actually allowable cyberbullying, and what actually crosses the line and gets into what's considered a published work, and uh, and could st- certainly start to fall more within a defamation criteria. So, so social media is definitely one whole ambit of, mm-hmm. of work. Um, I think Heather, actually, you uh, in family law, I've heard, uh, we've got some family lawyers at our firm too. I hear some very interesting cases about what uh, an angry spouse will put on Facebook. Uh, And I I always wonder about how that gets dealt with because that's not really part of the divorce proceedings, but it could turn into something else.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I've never had the, uh, oh, I'm echoing really badly. I'm sorry to aside there. I've never had anything go onto the civil side of things as far as defamation goes, but certainly a standard directive to my clients is just keep it off of social media. (laughs) Don't, don't put any of that stuff on there because it's just not the right forum for it. But What no, is like, the right forum, Heather? <laughs> well, uh, A, B conversations. That's what I, I always say. <laughs> That's an A and B conversation. Yeah. You know, C shouldn't be involved. There should be no C in, in those yeah. conversations. Yeah. But yeah,
1: And like, you know, I, know, I know that uh, I, I've had very little involvement in family law laws, but I recall a specific file that, uh, that I saw that came across my desk where um, part of the evidence provided to court Uh, with respect to uh, one of the spouse's stability was uh, printed copies of their various Facebook posts. Mm. And so I think people should be really cautious and understand that they might be emotional in the moment and they might actually be completely stable. But if they post a series of tweets that uh, come from a place of emotion, uh, it's very easy to, to establish that maybe there's, maybe they have some stability issues right
0: right it can look bad or not as it's meant to if every if you're posting your 2am thoughts yeah. to the public rather than into your diary that's maybe right. where they better belong
1: yeah. so don't drunk dial facebook yeah. yeah exactly that's actually that should be posted on on every lawyer, uh, family lawyer's retainer agreement
0: it does make me think of that that's one more reason though why folks might want to come to see you really early on too, when they're starting a business so that they can talk about those aspects as well with you when they're setting up their corporate structure how does my uh, how if at all is my spouse involved in this what does it look like if our relationship doesn't make it or my kids you know, can they be shareholders? Are they involved um, in the corporate structure and to get advice on those kinds of things as well? That's a great
1: point.
3: Yeah. What's the responsibility of a lawyer to explain corporate structures? Because uh, And I'm thinking about this right now as uh, I was pondering small legal firms versus big legal firms, yeah. and I've seen some really incredibly complex corporate structures that I know my clients do not understand. Yeah. But the lawyers have put them together. They make a whole pile of sense to the lawyers. They probably are the right thing. What's your, what's your professional requirements in terms of explaining these structures and, and how they stand the test of time?
1: Time. I, I think it's so hard to have a, a one-size-fits-all in, in terms of how exactly how deep you go in the explanation of the structures. Um, but I think it's, you know, it's still incumbent on you as the uh, uh, advisor to give what you believe to be the relevant information to the client for their particular circumstances. Right, Uh, um, so again, we come back to the example of a person who's sole director, sole shareholder, probably operating a small business. If we still give them a set of our our complex articles and all that, that's fine, it still works for them. Um, What do they really need to know about the complexity of those articles? Now that's a a subject of, of, you know, I think every lawyer would have a different answer for that. In my opinion, I would say, that they need to know what's relevant for what they're doing right now, but they should also be told that they've been set up in a way so that in the future, if things do get, um, uh, if things do get complicated with the company, that at least we've already got them on the right ship here, and that we'll be able to navigate the the waters with that. I, I think that's really important. Really going through and explaining what Series F preferred shares are and how they can be converted into so so like to a person who's, let's say, opening up again, a lemonade stand using that company, they're, A, they're not going to really care, and B, they're going to be fairly upset if all of a sudden this turns into a five-hour meeting, right? So.
2: Yeah, and and a lot of the, like, the share structure specifically, I think that's, that becomes important when you're adding people to the company that are going to own part of the company. Yeah. And so uh, I guess if they're like the simple guy, it may, maybe, it might be enough, for example, Kim, to just to let them know, if you're thinking about having somebody come on board to the company and buy into the company and own part of the company, we should talk at that point, but you're set up. We, there's not, you wouldn't have to do anything structurally to the corporation kind of thing. Um, yeah. yeah uh, Nin, perhaps you could, something that I come across frequently with people that aren't lawyers thinking about corporations is, and I I get it because this is a confusing kind of thing, kind of the difference between a shareholder, a director,
1: and an officer. Okay. Yeah, so uh, shareholders are the actual owners of the corporation. So a shareholder actually owns a share of the corporation. What, the, what that makeup is like is based entirely on what ends up getting set up between the various owners. Uh, a director is basically an elected position. He's elected, he or she is elected by the shareholders of the company, and they're appointed to basically manage the direction of the corporation. So they are considered the controlling mind of the company. They make the decisions, the hiring, the firing, uh, et cetera. And then you've got the um, – Uh, officers. So the officers are actually appointed positions. So whether it be president, secretary, treasurer. In Alberta's laws generally, it's not really that relevant. Uh, Whether whether your officer's position is president, secretary, treasurer, um, it it, it has more so uh, relevance with respect to what I want to call irrelevant documentation. So there are resolutions that can only be signed by the secretary et cetera, but, um, but there's no added power in any of those positions. Um, and and you know, where, this, where things could potentially be uh, altered uh, from what I'm saying or where we can deviate a little bit from what I'm saying is, is, is you, there's nothing stopping you from creating an agreement between the shareholders as to whether there is more relevance in any of these positions. So uh, they normally call these agreements unanimous shareholder agreements. So uh, short-form lawyers will always say USAs. So uh, a USA is basically gov- uh, an agreement that's going to govern uh, the dealings of the corporation, specifically the rights and liabilities that the shareholders all have. And uh, what that, can, that agreement can typically speak to is things like what happens if uh, a shareholder dies, what happens to their shares, or what decisions can be made by the majority of shareholders as opposed to What decisions can only be made by unanimous consent? Um, Who are the appointed managers and the directors of the corporation? Are there any permanent positions? So there may be certain shareholders who started the corporation that say, as long as I own shares in this company, I will always be elected to the director position in the board. Uh, These are the type of things that can be spelled out in, in an agreement. Uh, called the unanimous shareholder's agreement. So a very important agreement if there's ever going to be more than one shareholder in a company. And uh, again, a good lawyer, a good good accountant, good advisor would make sure that their clients are aware that such agreements even exist and that they should consider doing it.
0: Is that where the shotgun clause goes? I find people are really, really like yeah. that phrase, the shotgun
1: clause. Yeah. Is that? <laughs> yeah, pretty much everybody knows that one term and that term is, is actually super relevant in the United Shareholder Agreement. So uh, to, to put it in very simple terms, uh, sh- uh, shotgun clause, the whole concept behind it is that a company should never be in a stalemate. So if shareholders are not in agreement, someone's got to go. The whole idea is that the the shareholders that are opposing each other are basically facing off with a shotgun against each other, and if one pulls the trigger and misses, then the other shareholders got it. Right. So, and, uh, so to put that in, in into context of what we're trying, like what we're talking about a shareholder dispute, if uh, we'll just use the example of Evan and I. If Evan owns 50 shares and I own 50 shares in a company and we both see uh, the company going in two different directions and we have a shotgun clause in place, the rules of the shotgun clause would would suggest that I could go to Evan and say, look, Evan, I'm going to buy your 50 shares for a thousand dollars. And if Evan says no, he's obligated to buy my shares for that same amount. So, The good thing about the shotgun clause is it it allows for there to be a fair offer because I'm taking the shot. And if I miss, Evan gets to take that shot right back at me. Right. So, um, so that's the value of of a clause like that. And, um, uh, it's just one of the various things that would be in an agreement like that. There's buy sell provisions, which talk about what happens in the event of certain unforeseen uh, circumstances, uh, which would trigger the potential sale of the shares. So best examples of, that I can give, right, probably the most relevant would be someone dying, right? someone passes away, what happens to their shares? Uh, a unanimous shareholder agreement will actually deal with what happens with it. Whereas if you don't have a unanimous shareholder agreement and, and some a shareholder was to die, their estate actually takes ownership of those shares. And that might not be what you as another partner of them uh wants and it could create some stagnation within uh within the company so so very important agreement and pretty much there it's very rare where someone would come into an or it should be very rare where someone comes into a law office with a group of partners wanting to set up a company and leaves without one um you know you should that that should be considered part and parcel with the incorporation
2: yeah yeah 99 of the time um and I guess uh, people love the, the just I guess the vision of the shotgun, <laughs> shotgun standoff. Yeah. Um, but it's not it, that, you can get into trouble with that too. Um, you know, lest anyone think that oh, all I need is USA and a shotgun clause and we're good. Yeah. Um, that shotgun clause is perfect where there's equal bargaining power, equal financial um, yeah. resources. Um, what could happen that could be something to watch out for is where you have somebody who like nin has got millions of dollars and I only have thousands of dollars. Um, Niden would have the ability to offer me something out of my range that I couldn't afford that perhaps is still undervalues the shares.
1: Yeah. Um, though it's still a gamble on my part because there's nothing, I have no idea if you have a rich uncle, or if you have uh, or or if you can put together a group of other people who say, Hey, we'll pool our money because this is a great deal. he's trying to screw you, but here's our opportunity to, to get him back so I mean it comes with its gamble that not to but I do your point is well taken in the sense that you know if Nitha knows enough about Evan and knows and thinks that there's no chance that he can put this money together. Um, then maybe he, he, he pulls a fast one. But I think, I think that that's uh, – I haven't actually seen that happen. Uh, we, I've actually been involved in plenty of shareholder dispute matters. Um, and I, to this day, I don't think I've ever seen a shotgun uh, trigger happen where one person was in a very advantageous position. Where, though, where the advantage lies is in key men. Or they, they, you know, they, they, if, if one person is absolutely relevant to the company, and is doing all the work and doing all the heavy lifting, the other person is just an investor. That that person that does all the work probably has a, an advantage over the one that doesn't because they actually know the operation of the business. Mm-hmm. Um, so it may not be a fair circumstance where where it it, it could very well be that a shareholder comes forward and says, "I'm going to underpay you for for your shares because in reality, if you don't have me, you don't have a company." I mean, again, you know, what would that look like? I don't know. Like, if what? Imagine if the company was actually named after that person, right? And so, like, all, and the brand is in their name.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Do, you, do you need them? And so, they have the bargaining power there
0: for sure. Mm-hmm. I have a question coming up out of that. So you mentioned shareholder disputes. So um, I I mean, these agreements, like all agreements are there to try and anticipate problems and resolve them in advance. So that if there is a disagreement, you can go to the agreement and try and resolve it. But um, if you have a few shareholders who can't quite come to a consensus on something, what are the things that are available to help those shareholders try and work through a disagreement without triggering the shotgun or pulling the trigger on the shotgun. I mean, I don't know if there's
1: much you can do in terms of the documentation of it within an agreement, but I think that knowing that the threat of, uh, of things getting to a stage where a shotgun is pulled is usually enough for people Uh to realize that either we got to make this work or it's going that route. And so it comes down to a, a uh, a method of compromise. Now, that being said, uh, your, your shareholder agreement can certainly outline um, what uh, are tiebreakers and, and methodologies for tiebreakers um, so that things can always move forward, right? Um, that's definitely within, the, uh, within a lawyer's ability to draft and all that. And uh, I remember, it's been a long time, but I, I remember seeing one agreement which actually had a coin toss provision in it which actually said that a coin tossed by a, a party chosen by, <laughs> chosen by the, the shareholders uh, and, and that would be the, that'd be the deciding factor. If there was ever a circumstance where they were stuck right in the, the middle on something.
0: Mm-hmm. Do people ever use mediation or any of those other sorts of tools to help them through disputes?
1: I, I think so. Uh, I, I think that there's a place for it. And I think that arbitration and mediation are growing areas and should be explored more, uh, in our, uh, in, in, in business, um, for multiple reasons, right? We have clogged up courtrooms, uh, getting justice is not fast anymore. Um, so sometimes, you know, you can't wait for two years for something to get resolved. Um, Similarly, uh, I think that people have less affordability. Uh, it, it's probably a factor of a couple of things. Uh, lawyers are charging more uh, because their own costs have gone up. Mm-hmm. And, and so suddenly paying $400 an hour to resolve a, resolve a dispute over something that really is contractual uh, might, might be easier to resolve in a, in a mediation that has a fixed fee component to it. Um, I think we should. Be, I think that we should all be encouraging mediation, even if it's not formal in nature. Um, I, I think that litigators should be talking more about having roundtable conferences. Kind of ties into a lot of what you do, Heather, with the um, collaborative family law approach, which is to say, hey, like we could probably get past most of these issues by having the two lawyers and the the two spouses in a in a room, and if we can at least hammer out Ninety percent of it. Then what's left is just ten percent. And if we can't solve that between each other, at least it's a, a small enough item to deal with for a court to decide on in a quicker, uh, a quicker trial or application.
0: Yeah, it strikes yeah. me that there's a parallel there, and that these are relationships as well. They're not family relationships necessarily, although sometimes they are. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but they are relationships. So, yeah. yeah, it's interesting.
1: Well, I think that the courts have been really good about forcing a lot of litigation to go towards uh, go into mediation. Um, so uh, I think that's more in small, small claims courts. Uh, so matters of under $100,000 where there's a civil claim. Uh, there seems to be a lot of encouragement now that it has to go through a uh, number of steps. There's a pretrial conference, but there's also a mediation that's usually recommended or a judicial dispute resolution. Um, and you're seeing a lot of cases get resolved before they get to trial because parties start to understand um, more and more about each other's position, but also get to understand the evidence before them. Right. Um, so yeah, when it comes to corporations, I think we're, if if you, if we look at arbitration in the context of corporations, um, when it's within the same company, so you know, you're not really suing somebody else. It's just shareholders between each other having a dispute. You would think that for the better, for the better good financially of the company, they would find a way to, Shake on it and, and figure out a compromise. Though it doesn't always happen, and we see enough of things fall uh, where things fall apart as well. But even when things fall apart, you don't normally see that. Um, uh, uh, I'm trying to think of the term, but basically the 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 burnt to the ground approach, really. Which is, I, I don't think the, I don't think people uh, want the company to go to zero. I think the, the shareholders might be having a problem, but they want to see the company live. And so, at some point, they know they have to compromise. Otherwise, uh, uh, oh, scorched earth is what I was going with. But otherwise, you go scorched earth, and you let the whole thing sink, right? But then there's nothing left to fight about.
0: Right.
2: So, hopefully, before they get to the dispute resolution yeah. phase, the company is growing. Yeah. And uh, then yourself, as a as a businessman who has – started your own firm and grown it into a mid-sized firm.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, what are some tips for how to grow and manage the growth?
1: Yeah. Like I think, um, uh, I, I think that the biggest thing is, is understanding your uh, limitations as a, as a, uh, a person you can't do everything by yourself. Um, so building a good team uh, of talent around you is, is super important. Um, we, I was giving an example earlier about, uh, the plumber doing the electrical work Um, you know when you first start a business especially a professional practice I think like Heather and Evan you both are in that world and Kim I I think you also you're doing you're doing a lot of your own self-development in your within uh, your company there Um, one thing that I, I find is is the biggest challenge is is you know we only have so much money and we only have so much time and so you can't just hire all of the best of everything and have them all sitting here ready to do something when you only have maybe 10 clients to begin with, right? Um, but understanding your limitations early is very important. So having good good professional advisors, again, so get the, get the right accountant backing you, um, get the right IT people, because IT is everything in business today, right? Um, and then, yeah, surrounding yourself with the right support. So in law firms, um, we depend so much on our assistants. Um, and, uh, you know, cheaping out on, on hiring people that maybe aren't right for the job um, is, is a surefire way to fail. Um, similarly, hiring someone who's got a very good skill set in one particular area and forcing them to do something they don't know how to do is, is also a really bad idea. Um, so building talent um, and uh, having the right professionals around you would be my number one tip and my number 2 tip which is a, uh, is a very close second is having good systems in place. And uh systems can mean a ton of things but but procedures for everything so that there's one way to do it all. Not only can you streamline a lot of things, um you can also scale it. So growth comes by you being able to not have 100 hands and not be obligated to do everything because if I can tell you when we first started our firm I was I was our pseudo bookkeeper. I was our pseudo it guy. I was also, I also had a tool set because I somehow knew how to put desks together and take them apart. Um, I was hanging picture frames and you know, you, you don't realize it at the time because let's say you have three or four clients to start with. You're like, well, I have time to do this, but why are you putting that time towards things that other people can do way quicker than you and way better than you. Yeah. That time should have been spent marketing. And and building building your business and going on those right on the correct lunches and spending time building your brand, um, and I've learned that over the years, and I still have really bad habits for it. I I, I think that it's a running joke in the office, but I think everybody kind of knows me as the one who's a little bit more financially conservative in the in the firm. Um, as, as uh, I was one of two founding partners and the other partner, he, he, he wouldn't mind me saying this at all, but uh, he, I don't think he ever looks at the bill. <laughs> like if he wants something, he gets it and then we deal with the consequences afterwards. Uh, and so we, we have a running joke that, uh, that don't, if it's something that everybody at the firm really wants. Don't, bring that bill to me, bring it to him. Uh, and then I'll be the one to figure out how we're paying for it. And so, but, but, you know, I, I think uh, uh, understanding, um, understanding that you can't do everything is, is super important. And uh, scaling is now the way of the future again. I mean, look at where all competition is very, very big in, in our field. Um, quite honestly, a lot of the work we do as lawyers uh, is not rocket science. There's some stuff that's very complicated, and we need to, we need to be advisors and really need to be working in an advisory capacity. But there's a lot of work that doesn't really require 14 years of practice or 20 years of practice, um, and so we're going to get eaten up by competition if we focus if we keep our minds narrow, okay. if if we only focus on on the uh, the commodities. So uh, just say, okay, and you know, we talked about it, but like a very straightforward will, right? Where there's nothing complicated going on. You know what? A first year lawyer can probably do it just fine as a 50 year lawyer, right? Mm-hmm. As long as they've had the right training. Um, but if you're still 50 years into your practice, still trying to fight for that file, for that simple will that uh, that that doesn't really need you to work on it then you probably did something uh, this is my own opinion but you probably did something wrong in your practice at some point you you went the route of taking the easy route instead of becoming more of an advisor uh, i think all four of us are in um in 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 fields that i think we want to be better and better i think we want to take on challenges, we want to become smarter in our advice and we want people to value our advice for the dollars, the hourly rate that we're going to charge. Um, so, you know, I would feel terrible charging someone four or $500 an hour to sit down and go over something that I know I can send my first year associate into the room to help them with, because it's my, it's more money out of their pocket than they didn't have to pay for. I should be focusing my time on, on advice at the level of experience that I, I now have. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense.
3: It's a long time to understand your value. and It sounds like you've specialized Nitten. What, what areas have you specialized in and where do you see niches forming in the legal space?
2: Well, lawyers are not specialists Kim we can yeah. Never, yeah. This, well, they're a very dangerous word for yeah us.
1: <laughs> it, it's it's dangerous in so many ways right I, I think that um, no I, I think that I found niche areas that I enjoy working on and so I try really hard to focus on just getting more of that work and getting challenges within those areas of work uh, so I, I mean I, I do a lot of commercial real estate work and a lot of bank financing yeah. and those are my two two areas I enjoy doing the most. Um, and I find that I now possess enough knowledge and skill in there where I truly do believe that I have a competitive edge over my, my competition. Um, and then there are other areas, a lot that I like doing because I just enjoy doing them. I wouldn't say I'm necessarily number one at it, but, uh, but I, I think that I know it enough to be able to give proper and prudent advice. Um, but again, coming, you know, if you think about taking back to the whole growth idea, um, adding the right talent around you covers up for what you don't know. So if you, if you take on a file, which initially you think you can handle, and suddenly you realize that this is actually a lot more complicated, needs more experience. It's nice to have a team of 10 or 15 lawyers around you because chances are there's someone that has that experience that you can then go to and ask for help. Um, or, transition the file to them so that they can take it on. Um, but yeah, so my areas are, are, are where they are, but I, I, I do definitely do a, a fair number of areas. Uh, Heather was kind enough to read out a lot of them in the in the opening there, but, um, but it's part, partly because that's, I've like learning. I like, I like to stay in the know of it. I still try and make it into a courtroom at least once a year just to know and remember what it feels like. Otherwise the type of work I do would typically never, see me in a courtroom.
2: So I'm glad you mentioned in the beginning the biography because there is some of the things that Heather mentioned in your intro were about the communities that you are a part of. Um, So I'm I'm looking at them here. We have, you're at the University of Alberta. You're on the faculty of business and the faculty of law. Mm -hmm. You serve as a director with the Mortgage Loans Association of Alberta and a board member with the South Asian Bar Association and a past board executive with the, I hope I say this right, the Manos Seva.
1: Ma- yeah, Manos Siva, yeah.
2: Manos Seva Society yeah. and Edmonton Valley Zoo Development Society.
1: What role would you say
2: your involvement in those communities, and feel free to speak to any of those yeah. communities, um, what role would you say your involvement with those communities has played in your business?
1: Well, I think, the best way to market yourself is to put yourself out there and, and find people that are familiar to you um, because they're going to feel like you're approachable and approachability is a big issue in in our field that we can get to in a moment. But, but ultimately um, uh, you know, when, if you're coaching, I mean, there's things I didn't throw on there, but like, I I'm a coach on my kids hockey team right you know if you're coaching the team the parents all already have a certain level of trust with you so that now they know that you're also a lawyer there's already a rapport built right if they need something they can call you similarly um uh any of these associations so the edmonton valley zoo development society was a really cool experience it was years ago um, but the valley zoo that we now have when I joined we did it. When I joined it was under construction it was a it was the Old Valley Zoo. Um, and so if you any of you have been there recently um, you'll see it's just amazing now it's, it's beautiful it's uh, uh, state-of-the-art. Uh, type of zoo especially for a canadian zoo um so are you responsible for bringing in the elephants <laughs> no and and that's a that's a dangerous topic to get into it <laughs> but no i actually uh I, I was more involved so the development society was involved in in making sure that we would meet the necessary targets to allow for the the municipal funding uh to continue to flow Um, so the, the zoo, we didn't operate the zoo, but the operator of the zoo would report to us. So the, uh, and we would, we wouldn't give much direction. It's not like we would direct like how to deal with the animals and all, um, but our job was to, uh, make sure that we were hitting our targets so that the city continued to believe this was a viable investment, uh, and, and invest in the completion of the construction that we now see today and to make it a proper city facility. So. So it was neat because it was the first time I was on a, uh, it, it was a pseudo municipal board. So it was, it, the, there, there was a lot of involvement with the city. Um, and it was interesting to see because there, there's obviously some bureaucracies and all that, but, but what I, what I got from that was I, I got exposed to a group of people that I don't think I would have ever met in my life. Like there would have been no real reason for us to all cross paths. And, um, and so, yeah, does it turn into clientele? Does it turn into knowledge? Um, yes. So you learn more about governance so you can advise clients about it and you meet more people who could potentially be clients or referral partners. So, so what role does it play in, in developing the business? Uh, just putting yourself in there, you, you know, you, you absorb, you become a sponge and you absorb everything that's going out. And hopefully you show yourself as being a competent person, uh, where people start to develop rapport with you and, and trust with you. So the Valley Zoo was a big one. And, um, the U of A, of course, you know, teaching at the U of A is, is very rewarding. Um, uh, you're instructing your your future peers. And so uh, hopefully if I did an average job, at least in, in teaching them, that they've come out with at least a little bit of uh, 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 deference to what I may say about a particular topic, which helps when we're negotiating against one another uh, down the road. And, and I actually have a number of students that are now my colleagues who i do files with regularly and uh and so it's pretty neat to talk to them and see that they've you know they've also gotten they've got the same skill set really and so uh so you're they're no longer your students so when you're dealing with them on on a file there's a certain element of uh uh, pride so to speak when you see that they're doing a good job on their end too so um, so it, it, and, and again I get referrals from them all the time so some of them didn't end up going into commercial real estate work um, but they took my class so now when they get a, a call from a client saying I need this done they they turn to me so um, that's a, an added advantage for your business and your development as well is, is again just putting yourself out there being known yeah yeah um
2: and so you are not an immigrant my wife is an immigrant she immigrated from spain i had i imported her i like to say but you uh were your parents immigrants
1: yeah so my parents uh both moved here my dad in the 70s and my mom in 1980 from india both of them yeah that's right yeah
2: and so uh, you're also cause, i mean you we mentioned the uh one of the organizations you're involved in uh, well two with the south asian bar association and i'm assuming the mana seva society is also something to do with the indo-canadian community
1: yeah so the the seva is a really cool organization they've been around for a long time they're uh they raise money to uh through three or four events a year and the money is uh, distributed to uh, building out schools in uh, remote villages in india uh, and to support inner city schools in Edmonton. So they always make a pretty sizable donation to uh, uh, inner city schools in Edmonton, but then a good chunk of their donations uh, are raised to build schools. So while I was there, the school converted from uh, grade one to six to grade one to 12. Uh, And that was a pretty neat thing. Um, and then, how we can sustain and support those towns. So, um, we, uh, so uh, helping getting them farming equipment so that their kids wouldn't have to work on the farms. So, by getting them, by buying them a tractor, they could send uh, the, kid, the, the whole village. You could buy the whole village one tractor. And all, and now they didn't need any of the children to work on the farm anymore. Their children could come to school, um, uh-huh. so that was a really cool, cool thing to be a part of. Mm-hmm. Uh, and South Asian Bar Association started uh, started right before COVID, unfortunately, um, and so we had one. We had our grand opening a gala meeting uh, that everyone was excited about. And then we haven't really been able to do a whole lot. We've, there's been a couple of mail outs, but but this is a very good organization that is mirroring Saba across North America. So there is Saba pretty much everywhere. Edmonton was one of the few cities that didn't have it. So so I was able to be one of the founding board members of that and uh, basically South Asian, uh, members of the South Asian community that are part of the legal bar.
2: So that's remarkable that Saba did not have a chapter here because Edmonton has a pretty strong South Asian community, I would say. So have you seen, considering the, the, there wasn't enough of a, uh, I guess, legal community to, to have a, a, a Saba mm-hmm. chapter here before, have you seen access to justice issues in the, the South Asian, in, like Indo-Canadian community and, and other um, you know, uh, visible minority
1: communities? Well, absolutely, I I think that um, there are so many areas that have access to justice issues, but also issues for minorities in the world of law period, right? Um, So if you wanna go uh, on a a grander scale, access to justice in its truest form, which is uh, being able to to have your day in court, Right. Um, you know, we, we look at it and, and again, growing up Canadian, I was born and raised here. Uh, sure. I knew that I wasn't necessarily the same color as uh, the majority of the population, but I never really felt like an outsider. I was Canadian. I played hockey. I, you know, I had my bacon and waffles. <laughs> I, I had the whole deal. Right. Uh, but uh, uh, what I found is that um, I, I've represented a number of people over, the last 13 years, uh, who are new immigrants into the country who maybe don't speak the language very well, who don't necessarily dress exactly like we do, um, in like the average Ed- Edmontonian would. Uh, I've seen them struggle with the idea uh, and the intimidation that they've had with going into a courtroom. Um, and when you talk to them about what they're, why they're so nervous, I've, I've had clients shivering. That shivering to uh, not not wanting to go inside a courtroom, and their explanation is it really hits you where you realize where they say like they walk in and they don't expect to get justice because nothing is familiar to them and they feel they're not familiar to anyone else. They walk into the courtroom and you look at the you look at the lawyer that's sitting at the other table, and let's say it's a, a for I'm being casual about it, but uh, like a slim, clean-cut white guy right and they look at the they look at the lawyer on the other side of the table who's also a slim clean cut white guy and then they look straight at the judge and he just looks like an older version of those two guys and he's and, and now and now you have a guy in there who says how are they ever going to be compassionate about my situation how could they empathize with anything that i've gone through um and, and they probably don't understand me uh, they they probably don't even like me. Like, you know, again, whether this is fair or not is irrelevant. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not saying that they didn't get justice, right? But it's the intimidation of whether they feel comfortable enough there. So having, for, for them, that comfort wasn't there. The mere fact that I was brown skinned, I can speak Hindi and Punjabi, but I also speak English the way the rest of us speak English in Canada if you were born here. Um, and I dress like your average lawyer would in, in Edmonton, all that, that gave them so much comfort because now they're like, oh, well, you can understand me, but you also understand the system, and they, they're giving you the same level of respect as the next person because you're your called to this bar, you're able to present before the court, and you also know the system. So, so I think that uh, access to justice has been an issue because for a long time, we really didn't have a lot of lawyers uh, from different communities either. Um, and you know, I'm talking about the experience of an, Indo, uh, a, an Indo-Canadian male representing uh, Indians that have uh, immigrated or, or people from the South Asian community. But I mean, this is no different when you go into gender or you go into um, a, a, a sexuality uh, there are people that feel the exact same way. Um, and, and they do, it's not just in the courtroom. They feel that in the presence of lawyers, they feel that in law firms, even firm cultures. Right. Um, and so our field as a whole, we're out there to bring justice for, for everyone and, and, and all that. And we, we talk about it. Uh, but I, I think that sometimes we, we fail to recognize that there's still a lot of work to be done in our, mm-hmm. our industry as well
2: yeah that's that's such a key key point i uh, sorry heather i see you want to say something i'll just i'll, I'll finish my statement here quick so we, you can pipe in but um i i'm uh i speak spanish i'm fluent in spanish and so i've had the opportunity to help spanish-speaking clients that maybe don't speak very good english mm-hmm. and uh unfortunately i had to turn one away because it was going to a trial and i don't i don't do trials and i've this one was really tough because they had been looking for a spanish-speaking lawyer and that, that could help them out and uh, it was tough for me not to be able to help them and i know that they're gonna have a tough time finding a spanish-speaking lawyer that will be able to help them yeah. um and that language gap is you, you can't overstate how significant that is and, and how much of a barrier it will feel it feels like to somebody who's on the other side of that barrier and trying so- to access justice
1: and so organizations like Saba, we we exist to create um, some platform, not only for the public, but for lawyers within these communities who can, who can now come out. They can, first of all, find, find some um, common ground amongst each other uh, for help and support. Uh, you got to keep in mind that there are a lot of members of Saba who – uh, may not have been called, they may not have originally been called to the bar in Canada. So they may have been practicing law in another country who have come here, they've completed the necessary examinations, and now they're practicing, but they may still need some assistance and they may need some support amongst their peers and their colleagues. Um, similarly, a platform the, for the public to uh, be able to vocalize concerns that they may have with respect to the legal system they can now, if they're from the South Asian community, they may feel a lot more comfortable approaching an organization like Saba to let us know so that we can champion those rights and we can champion those, uh, uh, those causes in, uh, in the larger dialogue amongst the bar. Uh, I, I think it'd be, I think the, the legal bar is filled with exceptional people, right? Um, for the most part, I think most people have joined the field of law to do good service uh, fine, well, they want to make money, all that that 's all great, but everybody wants to be good advisors and I think that generally speaking it 's full of good people who understand that that they need to keep their uh, minds open and their their ears open to, to listen to what's, uh, what, what minorities are speaking about and making sure that they 're getting the same fairness that we 've learned about in principle in, in school right. Mm-hmm.
2: So Heather, Uh, what's on your mind?
0: I just have a lot of thoughts floating around, I guess. I think about the experience of a lot of clients coming to a lawyer's office in the first place and being maybe intimidated by being downtown and um, having to have found a parking spot and then trying to find the address and getting upstairs and not knowing what they're even facing. Upstairs with a lawyer and there's intimidating furniture and there's forms to fill out. All of those things to even get into a lawyer's office. Never mind, fast forward to being at that courthouse at some point or another um, is just can be so overwhelming so you know there's so many points where we as lawyers can really be thinking about the people and the humans in front of us that are coming to us for help and guidance and to make sure that we're truly doing that guiding them through the process and thinking about their individual needs in that situation
1: yeah, yeah. And like these type of podcasts are perfect perfect way to start breaking some of those barriers right like uh uh if people start to realize that there is more approachability e- even by listening to something like this and then realizing that oh actually i can relate to these people <laughs> um they, they won't feel as intimidated but when you watch tv and movies and you see lawyers they, they're they're usually presenting themselves as intimidating individuals right uh i think the average person doesn't doesn't think that they're the average person thinks that their lawyer is uh you know is able to fight them with words is able to uh, you know be a good wordsmith uh and outsmart them etc i think that i think some of that comes from the perception of hollywood right No, by buying
3: justice yeah. It's yeah. a component of that, that not, I'm, I'm the regular person. I'm the non-lawyer. And, and I see that all the time on TV. You need money to buy, buy yourself justice. So I think yeah. your organization is amazing because people can go and ask questions and get educated and know that they do have a fair shot. If they have something that they need to bring to the table.
1: Absolutely. And, and, you know, when I, when I talked about um, walking into a courtroom and being intimidated because nothing seems familiar, well, Things organizations like SABA are definitely going to promote um, that uh, multi-multicultural individuals be looked at as uh, a, the next appointments for judges. That uh, that more women are uh, looked at as uh, as potential appointees for judges and for uh, positions of uh, of authority within the law. Um, and and of course, I think now is the most relevant time to talk about it. But people from the uh, LGBTQ community, uh, they they want representation as well, and they should have representation as well. So, seeing future judges uh, and future project, crown prosecutors, future chief uh, justices, etc., they should uh, they they definitely have to start taking. Uh, the whole community into account, and mm-hmm. this is only going to happen by having organizations, whether it's SABA or another organization out there, making sure that this is known, that this is an actual concern. Um, and so, the diversity in the courtroom is going to result in more empathy towards certain uh, circumstances, but it's also going to create comfort in the legal system for for uh, uh, people that are uh, uh, maybe not comfortable right now.
2: I'm glad you mentioned judges. We have, like, the probably the, the best judge we've had in my uh, lifetime on the Supreme Court of Canada was a female who was from, I think she graduated from the U of A, Justice yeah. McLaughlin. Yeah. Uh, who, thought, who knew that Alberta was so forward-thinking that way, that we would produce yeah. such a great female judge? Oh, absolutely. Um, and uh, I mean, female have nothing to do with it, but such a great judge. And, uh, what do you think about the newest Supreme court appointment?
1: Well, it's interesting. Uh, so, uh, justice Jamal is, um, uh, obviously it's a moment of pride for lawyers who, who basically are of color. Uh, I think, uh, I think all of us wondered when there was going to be a person of color on the Supreme court of Canada. Um, that being said, there's been some uh, there's been a, a fair bit of diversity in terms of uh, you know religious backgrounds, and I think there's a good split of gender uh, and, and whatnot. But but that, it's a big it's a big a big thing to see uh, a person of a visible minority uh, end up on there uh, again for all the same reasons I talked about. Right? Um, uh, diversity on the bench is a good thing. it uh, it'll allow different perspectives. And, uh, and, you know, especially when decisions are being made by a group of, of, uh, a group of lawyers, it or sorry, a group of judges, it allows one judge to potentially give a different perspective. Um, uh, we had, so uh, we've had some great, uh, judges on that, uh, on the Supreme Court already. And I know we will maintain that tradition, but what was cool about, uh, Justice Jamal in, in, uh, in addition is that, uh, he also has roots to Alberta. Um, his family owned, uh, uh, small business in, in Edmonton. He went to Ross Shep high school, uh, uh grad- graduated from Ross Shep. Uh, I think he did a summer, one of his summer, uh, as an, as a law student in, in Alberta as well. So, so pretty neat to, uh, to have some roots there as well. And, uh, I'm looking forward to, uh, uh i i tend to like reading about reading the judgments that come out i i'm looking forward to seeing what his input is going to be and um and how things move forward and i imagine there's going to be more changes uh as time goes on and uh more and more additions to the to the bench that creates uh even more diversity but uh but you know i mean that's canada right we've uh we, we pride ourselves on our multiculturalism and it's good to see it in every avenue. I think we already see it in many avenues. We see it in politics, right? We, I think uh, just a couple of years ago, a, a good chunk of the cabinet ministers were, were you, you, could, you could pick a country and you'd find someone who uh, had, had a, a role as either an MP or cabinet minister within our federal government as well. So, so progress has definitely been made. It's just, there's always work to do. There's a, always more that we can do
2: yeah i think in the legal field it's so the the cultural background is so important um candidate is growing not by birth rate it's growing by immigration yeah and more and more not from europe yeah right not from western europe it's coming people are coming from asia more and more whether that's uh india china um and africa as well like in edmonton we have a strong african population as well and so those cultures are very they're not the same as canadian culture and there's they're very very different and so to be able to have people in the legal system that understand that have that cultural understanding yeah um you can't like that is so important to help somebody give them the competent advice that they can understand
3: yeah
1: and and it it works both ways too, right? Like I, I, I think that it would be, it wouldn't be fair to say that if you're from one of those communities, you should find a lawyer from that community, and and that, because they'll know how to represent you best. Like I, ultimately, um, you know, your it's a case by case scenario. So uh, uh, there may be times where where they don't necessarily need that empathy or compassion about a particular cultural issue right uh you know like a a basic civil dispute between two companies has nothing to do with what country you're born in or what religion you are or like what the cultural practices are so but the thing is, is it's just no it's the availability to know that you can find people that may know something that that applies to your particular circumstances. You know, uh, I, I look at Heather, you know, in family law, it's, it's something that I I tend to see a lot of where I get a lot of phone calls from people within the Indo-Canadian community who all they know about me is that I'm a lawyer and that I have an Indian background. And so they assume that I practice family law. So they'll call and want me to help. And I, you know, I don't practice. We have lawyers here that I can refer them to, but, um, but they... Tend to say, but they they will say they're like, oh, I'm sure they're a good lawyer, but but they don't understand like how divorce works in our community, and then you're and then you say, well, no, I get that, and then you look at the bar, you look at the um, you look at the uh, uh bar uh, in Edmonton, mm-hmm. and there aren't a lot of family lawyers that are from the Indo Canadian community, mm-hmm. so you know your choice is either you go to one of the the few that are there or you make sure that you go to a lawyer that comes highly recommended who hopefully will be, um, recommended by someone who says, Hey, look, these people are open-minded. They'll understand. And you can explain it to them. Um, and you know, we still hear crazy stories about what's happening back home and in, in the, in the same divorce proceeding, because in certain countries, it's not good enough that you're only divorced in Canada. You still have to go through your own divorce proceeding in that home country that you were doing, you were married in. So so the having a lawyer here that understands that they're going to have to liaison with a lawyer in in one of those home countries and coordinate to get everything done uh uh congruently with one another um not everybody's up for that Mm -hmm. i think there are a lot of lawyers that say yeah it's not i don't really want to do that because i don't understand it maybe it's a liability thing and for some people it's just a comfort thing say it's not really my cup of tea so
2: Yeah, it's funny you mention that because I've had a few family files uh, with Indo-Canadian or or Indian, more recently immigrated clients, and there are things that I, you know, didn't know, but I asked because I'm like, well, gold, everyone, well, if you didn't know, gold is very important in Indian weddings. Mm -hmm. The price, I learned it in an unrelated uh, school uh, uh, class that the price of gold, um, worldwide goes up during Indian marriage season, wedding season because they acquire a lot of gold. It's a very important part of, uh, culturally, a very important part of, of getting married there. So, you know, I I understood that, but I didn't understand exactly how that works or the expectations and how it's considered property and, and how that all works. And so, you know, I asked them and they told me, and then I, yeah.
1: And you can see across the board, um, uh, when there's misunderstanding, so like, I, I recall a case uh, that I, I briefly looked at, where one of the lawyers was asserting that um, that the gold didn't form part of property unless they were going to construe it as being dowry, and the the other party was saying, well, it's not dowry, like like that wasn't that 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 was just a like both parties contributed the same amount of gold into the pot and this is for the children for their future value and all. Now, if nobody really took the time to understand the differences in, in the culture in terms of what's, what was considered a cultural norm and what's considered actually illegal, even in India, which is dowry itself is illegal. Right? So, so, um, uh, but the thing is, if you don't take the time to really understand it, um, it's very hard for you to pro- accurately represent your, your client, because I think, the the lawyers that were involved in that particular matter were trying to avoid having that gold even mentioned in the settlement documentation and you and the parties are like no it has to be documented there and they're like no because we don't know how it works and this and that so uh, where I'm getting at is that there's always going to be cases where someone with a similar background will be best suited for that particular area of law. I mean, uh, it doesn't have to be, it's not just racial or gender or sexuality. I mean, I, there are circumstances where um, sometimes a farmer who's dealing with a farm enterprise wants to deal with a lawyer who has a farming background mm-hmm. because they, they feel like that lawyer is going to understand that, um, that uh, area of law just a little bit better because there's a practicality element to it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and, and so fair enough. And, and if that's what gives them that comfort, then, then great.
2: Yeah. Well, uh, we, we've been going for a good period of time here. Yeah. We've covered a lot of ground and, uh, I don't know about you, Kim and Heather, but for me, it has been, uh, it's been great. And i really appreciate you coming on Aiden. No, Thank you.
0: Absolutely.
2: Any, uh, closing thoughts from you, Kim?
3: Nope. This is great. We haven't touched on corporate law at all. We haven't touched on, I don't think we've touched on minorities at all. Uh, Today, we brought up a lot of interesting things that we'll have to uh, revisit in the future and chat more about.
2: Yeah, agreed. Mm -hmm. Heather, any closing thoughts?
0: Yeah, this is definitely a continuing conversation and has given me a lot of food for thought.
2: And uh, Nin, anything that we didn't talk about or any last thought that you wanna share?
1: No, I just feel like I talked a lot. I think that you, I, I, hope, uh, I hope I didn't uh, uh, overtake too much of the, the dialogue there. But, but uh, no, this is very nice. It was very engaging. And, um, and hopefully uh, hopefully the people that listen to the podcast, uh, whether they gained some uh, insight on, on the commercial side of things or they just gained insight about what lawyers are thinking about right now. And uh, and uh, what we need for the future. So whether it was the diversity stuff or more education elsewhere, etc. I think it's really important that the message gets out. So thank you, three, for uh, for doing what you're doing. And uh, uh, I, I think that um, this is a podcast that uh, should be listened to. And I I'm looking forward to listening to the other ones.
0: Thank you so much for your time. Thanks,
2: Heather. We want to.
1: Yeah.
0: this has been another episode of access to justice thanks for listening or watching if you have any questions you would like us to address on the podcast please send an email to access to justice at gmail.com that's access with the number two justice podcast at gmail.com and we'll do our best to get you an answer on an upcoming episode thanks for listening
2: buzz Any information in this video is general information only and is not nor is it intended to be legal advice watching this video does not create a lawyer-client relationship. You should always seek the advice of a lawyer or other qualified professional for advice regarding your individual situation. While we take care to ensure that the information contained in this video is accurate and up-to-date, we make no warranties or representations as to the suitability, completeness or accuracy of the information contained in this video. Any reliance you place on the information is at your own risk. Kahane Law Office, Merrick Law, Heather Malarick Professional Corporation, Evan Clark Professional Corporation, Evan Clark, Heather Malarick, and any guests will not be responsible nor liable in any way for any content, including but not limited to any errors or Permissions in the content, or for any loss or damage of any kind occurred as a result of any content communicated in this video, whether by Evan Clark, Heather Malarik, or by a third party. Kim McDonald is a financial advisor with Raymond James Limited. Information provided is not a solicitation, and although obtained from sources considered reliable, is not guaranteed. The view and opinions contained in this media are those of Kim McDonald, not Raymond James Limited. Securities-related products and services are offered through Raymond James Limited, member Canadian Investor Protection Fund. Insurance products and services are offered through Raymond James Financial Planning Limited, which is not a member of Canadian Investor Protection Fund. Raymond James Advisors are not tax advisors, and we recommend that clients seek independent advice from a professional advisor on tax-related matters. Graceful fingers
3: intertwine. Comfort gladden.